All right, Matt. So what kind of music do you play for someone on their birthday? I guess like happy birthday music. I don't know. Gift wrapping. <laughs> huh? <laughs> uh, oh, man. <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now. Pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. <laughs> All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? I'm good, brother. Good deal. Good deal. So before we get into it, uh, we just want to say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find some different shows to listen to and some tips and tricks and stuff like that. So we're proud to be members of the Podbelly Network. Um, also want to say thank you to tonight's sponsors, Best Fiends and Raycon. And we'll talk more about them throughout the episode. While you're on the internet doing your Googling and some things that we can't talk about here on this show, um, go over to patreon.com slash graveyard tales and you can sign up to become a patron. Um, we really appreciate all of our patrons there um, and we try to show that by putting out at least one bonus episode a week and then our ten dollar patrons get to see the video versions of these shows and i don't cut as much out in the editing of the video version as i would the audio version so if we mess up if matt falls out of his chair or has to swat at a bug or something like that yeah. i don't cut that out that's happened this all before. happened yeah <laughs> Um, and we also will put out one episode every week that is a little bit shorter than a main episode and it, it could be any topic. It runs the gambit of what we talk about. Um, sometimes we talk about pirates. Sometimes we talk about slang words and it's just different stuff that interests us. So if you're interested in hearing us do a looser version of this show with different topics, go over there, patreon.com slash graveyard tales, sign up for one of the three levels that we've got. Adam, you know, you and I, we stay so busy. Oh yeah. I mean, you're either, you're either working on the show or you're working around the house or you're doing something with the kids. Um, I mean, it's just constant. It seems like it never ends, and you don't really get the opportunity to just stop and have fun. And a lot of people, myself included, you you either push that time for fun way down on the list, or you feel guilty when you take the time to have a little fun for yourself. Yep, exactly. Well, one of the easiest ways that I've found to just stop and have a little bit of fun is by playing Best Fiend. That's true. So, you know, you've, you've earned it. You know, you work hard. Take your time to have some fun and pull out your phone and play Best Fiends. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's not the typical puzzle game. You know, there's so much more to it. And it's great. 
I mean, you can just stop, say, hey, I'm going to take a break, and I want to have a little fun, and I'm going to play Best Fiend. Yep, exactly. And I was actually just talking to a friend of ours uh, today, in fact, about how busy we have been here lately, and it's true. Um, The best way to get a little free time to yourself and enjoy yourself is to play Best Fiends. Sometimes I'll just go hide out in the bathroom and uh, (laughs) play Best Fiends for a little while in there to kind of decompress and all that. And I'm on, I think I forgot to look at it right before we started, but I'm on like level 900 and something. So I'm getting up there. Um, Obviously, not anywhere near Ashley or Amanda. Um, They they smoke us every time they get on and they're like completing five levels when I've got one. But either way, I enjoy it. And I like the fact that it doesn't matter where we're at. I can take time and I can play Best Fiends. I don't have to have a Wi-Fi connection or anything like that. Um, We're actually going camping this weekend. So good thing to do laying there in the tent playing Best Fiends. I I don't need Wi-Fi. It's great. Yeah, I was just going to say, we're going camping next weekend. So, you know, I, I always know, you know, I can kick back at night. You know, I got no phone signal. Nobody's going to call me. Mm-hmm. And I can play Best Fiends with no problem at all. Exactly. Best Fiends is free to download, and it's a, a, a mobile puzzle game like you imagine. But they have thousands of exciting levels uh, for a new adventure all the time and and a new challenge every time you play and there's dozens of unique fiends to collect so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs and like we said you can play offline so you'll never be stranded if you lose your internet connection and they've got brand new events and challenges that pop up all year round so you've always got a chance to earn exclusive in-game items characters and rewards they're always adding levels you're not going to beat this thing it's not like mario brothers when we were a kid and we beat it within a few months they keep adding levels so you can just keep right on playing and if you want to join us in playing best fiends and a lot of our listeners in the graveyard they post about their progress all the time and their buddy numbers and they become friends on the best fiends game and stuff like that you can download it for free in the apple app store or on google play that's friends without the r best fiends that's right you've earned your fun time so go to the app store or google play and download best fiends for free plus you can earn even more uh with five dollars worth of in-game rewards when you reach level five that's great yeah, it is great. That's friends without the R. Best fiend. So, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and stop the intro there and just say, what are we talking about tonight, brother? <laughs> okay, so um, tonight we're we're going to talk about something weird that actually amanda brought up um she she sent adam and i a link to this and we kind of looked into it and then before we knew it we're we're dedicating an entire show because it's just so strange um so back in 1980 somebody erected a stop there oh never mind (laughs) (laughs) 
was like, it, wait a minute, what? What it did was, I say? It was the 80s, so I just yeah, was thinking. Yeah, it was the 80s. You know. So uh, they 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 erected this this granite monument in rural Georgia that has become known as the Georgia Guidestones. And if you're if you're from Georgia, you you may not even know it exists. Yeah. Um it's I mean it's 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 way out. It's about 2 hours from Atlanta by car. Um so it's it's really strange and when we started looking into this, it got even stranger. So I texted Matt at one point and I said I am having trouble getting my brain to function on this topic. Because yeah. there, there is something about this that makes absolutely zero sense to me. Yeah, there's a lot about it. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that tonight, and and I think if if you've not heard of this, or maybe you've just kind of seen it in passing, I think you're gonna be surprised that this this thing is right here in the middle of rural Georgia. Right. Right. Yeah. I had never heard of it. I had never heard of it. I I had heard about it, but until when we got that link, I didn't think even about looking into it because I, yeah. I I just thought it was another monument because the U.S. has a ton of monuments across, mm-hmm. you know, from coast to coast. There's monuments everywhere. And I just thought it was another monument dedicated to some war hero or, or something like that. And I didn't think anything else about it, but then it's totally not that. It's no, totally- it's not. <laughs> so as we always say, go check our sources down at the bottom of the show notes. Um, you can find all the links from where we found this information. And there is a lot more, definitely a lot more in this that um, mm-hmm. we are not going to cover uh, just because it either is way too weird or would take up way too much time. Right. Yeah. It, it would. Uh, in fact, we kind of talked about before we started recording that there was a lot of stuff we just left out just for the sake of keeping the show under two hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with a, a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of ideas of, of how these things came to be. And we really don't know. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to talk about how we don't know. Right, right. And there's a lot of background history, um, tangential history that I could have gone into that I just decided to leave out because I, I figured people would fall asleep and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> That's right. Now, the Guidestones, they're located at 1031 Guidestones Road in Elberton, Georgia. It's seven miles north of Elberton, technically, on Georgia Highway 77. So if you're from Georgia, you may know where that is, and you'll know that's out in the middle of BFE. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Now, it's a 19-foot-high monument, and it displays a 10-part message espousing the conservation of mankind and future generations in eight different languages. Now, the Guidestones also serve as an astronomical calendar, and every day at noon, the sun shines through a narrow hole in the structure and illuminates the day's date on an engraving. 
The names of four ancient languages are inscribed on the sides near the top. Babylonian cuneiform, classical Greek, Sanskrit, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. And I'm going to pause right there, Matt. Why in the U.S. would any of those four languages be prominent on a monument? I have no idea. The amount of people that could actually read those languages in the U.S. is going to be slim to none. There are people that can, yeah, but probably not in rural Georgia. And not not on a monument that was built in 1979, 80. Right, right. I mean, it, it just, again, like we said, there's a lot of this that just doesn't make sense. No. It, 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 and not making sense is putting it lightly, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says the guide stones are mysterious in origin um, because no one really knows the identity of, of the group of sponsors that provided its specifications, which we will get into mm-hmm. here in a minute um, when Matt takes over. We'll, we'll get into more of that. But first, let's take a look at the area where the guide stones were placed, because I don't think when I was looking into this, I don't think it was a coincidence that this area was chosen yeah. Um, there, there's a reason and maybe some of that is, is due to this, these facts here. I don't know. Now, the first part comes from the new Georgia encyclopedia it says, uh, the county seat of Elbert County in Georgia's Piedmont region is Elberton. So it was officially incorporated in 1803 and originally known as Elbertville. Now, Elberton has managed to outlive several rival towns in the area and is now the county's largest city with a population of, drumroll, 4,653 people. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, honestly, that's a small town and it being the the largest one in the area. And and if you look at where it is, it's in like the, the northeast corner of Georgia right up along the, I guess that's South Carolina mm-hmm. um, border. I, again, I mean, it, it either, it, it, because of where it is, it does not seem random. Right. I mean, there, you know, you say, well, how, how in the heck would you know that? Because there's even, even if you were just choosing a location at random, this one probably wouldn't even make the list. No, no. I mean, it just seems it, it's it's so it's so remote, but not not that remote. Um, that you you'd often wonder would who's going to see this? Right, right. And and maybe it was place there specifically for a certain set of people that would be in that area. But I don't know. Yeah. But but maybe being seen wasn't the intention. Right, right. Um now this area is also one of the nation's most important producers of granite monuments and memorials. So that's why I'm I'm wondering if this was intentional that mm-hmm. this area was was 
picked. Now, during the 1890s, Elberton called itself the Granite City, and after the turn of the century, the Granite Capital of the South. Soon thereafter, it, be- it began to claim the title of Granite Capital of the World. And I just had, to, I got to break in. Uh, it's weird that this is an Elberton. My great grandfather's name was Elbert. Yeah. And you don't hear that name anymore. Mm-mm. Like that, it, Elbert is not a name that you hear often anymore. Right. Um, his friends called him LB, though. And I think I've told this uh, story before. One of the first times I used a Ouija board, mm-hmm. I asked for information that would prove to me that it wasn't the people with me uh, that were doing it. So I said, what is my great-grandfather's name? He was still alive at the time. It came back LB. I freaked out. I walked away. I, um, I would have to. But yeah, um, that when I see Elbert, that's what pops into my head. Anyway, now this next part comes from Fox 5 Atlanta, and there was a piece that they did on... Uh, the the Elberton area and the Guidestones and all that. And um, that link is down in the show notes. But this says that it just so happens that Elberton is located on what could be called a river of rock with unusually high quality granite running right through the area. According to Christopher J. Kubis of the Elberton Granite Association, quote, you're talking about a vein of granite that is 35 miles long, it's about six miles wide, and it's about two to three miles in depth of solid rock. So there's an abundance of granite available, some of which we'll probably never get to, end quote. Yeah. That's crazy. Imagine living there and trying to put in a swimming pool. Oh, yeah, dude. I, look, I, you know, I live in Middle Tennessee. My parents put in a pool, an in-ground pool, when I was 14. Okay, they told my parents it's going to cost this much if we don't hit rock. But if we hit rock, we're going to have to blast. And that means it's going to cost this much more. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. I remember my parents been like, well, this is a this is a toss of the dice. But my dad was like, he's going to hit rock. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, about four feet down. Yep. And that's it, because. You know, we we sit Limestone. on a big rock. Yep, and and you know that was just like what slate and 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 crap. You know that you just typically would see, not granite. Yeah, I I, <laughs> so I dug. You dig it down and be like, what is this? Yeah, and it, there's no blasting that away. There's no. <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, uh, you know, you gotta. But I mean, truthfully, if you dug down in your own backyard and you're like, hey, look at all this granite. it's like i'm gonna start making countertops uh, yeah i was gonna say i'd be selling it that's what i'd be doing now this goes on to say so how did uh elberton granite come to be so famously used for monuments the answer lies in the strange story of a scandalous statue nicknamed dutchy now according to kubis a group of women in the 1890s decided they wanted to build a granite monument in the town uh in the town square to commemorate Confederate veterans who have passed away in the war. However, things didn't quite go according to plan. Quote, the sculptor 
was probably a German immigrant, maybe from up north, who had never seen a Confederate soldier. So when he sculpted Dutchie, he actually sculpted Dutchie with a Union uniform, says Kubis. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, this this story is so funny to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is hilarious that this happened. Oh, I know. Um, it says the uh, the last thing people here in Elberton wanted was a statue of a Northern Union soldier looking over them. <laughs> I'm sure that's just true. This, just this constant reminder. <laughs> yep. Yeah, right. Well, Dutchie soon became the most hated man in town. And in 1900, angry townspeople yanked him down. But as news of Dutchie spread, so did the fact that the granite from which he was sculpted was so pure and beautiful. Thus, craftsmen began using Elberton granite for monuments, helping launch an entire industry. So yeah. there's a good chance that if you have a granite monument anywhere near you, it was probably Elberton granite. Yeah. I mean, and going to a store, going to a granite supplier, there's, a, you know, a rock. What am I talking about? You know, that does like countertops and that kind of stuff as yeah. marble and granite and all those. A rockyologist so, shop. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> there's one. There's one right here in town. Mm -hmm. um, and if you if you go in there. Uh, Georgia granite is is something you can. That's a preference. Yeah, and and it's more expensive. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, now we'll go back to the encyclopedia here, and it says Elberton's original um, Elberton's origins date back to the decade before the American Revolution, so seventeen seventy five to eighty three. When settlers from Virginia and the Carolinas, following Indian trails and wilderness passes through the lower Appalachian Mountains, began to filter into the Savannah and Broad River Valleys. According to local lore, in 1769, William Woodley and a small number of pioneer families were driving flocks of turkeys through the area on their way to market in Augusta. The party camped in a hardwood valley near a beautiful spring and decided that it would be a good place to settle. So after selling their goods in Augusta, the party came back to the spring and established a frontier settlement. So that's supposedly how Elberton got its start. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is pretty interesting, which because of that actually plays into the some of the conspiracy theories as to why the Guidestones exist. But. I mean, let's talk about it. Who? Why does anybody care? Um, you know, somebody put up, you know, a big granite structure. Who who gives a flip? This yeah, is right. why. Okay. As Adam mentioned, those, you know, the hieroglyphics, the Sanskrit, those things, uh, you know, it's all there along with, you know, English and Spanish and other languages. But this is what's inscribed. And. It's interesting. I'm going to do this as if you were visiting the Guidestones. Okay. okay? Um, because typically the first thing you'll see is the bottom inscription. And then you just kind of read upwards. So this is what you would see if you're reading from the bottom up. Okay. The first inscription says, be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. Okay. That's, that's all right. I agree with that. Prize truth, beauty, love, 
seeking harmony with the infinite. Well, you know, sounds like something from a video game. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Balance personal rights with social duties. Sounds like good advice. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Something that I wish had been taken to heart (laughs) a long time ago. Right. Um, Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world order court. That's an interesting way to put that. Yeah, it is. Um, I I somewhat agree. And then the way it's worded, I kind of feel weird about it. (laughs) I know. I mean, it kind of seems like what the UN would would want to be. Yep. Yeah. But they're not quite. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Okay. Okay. That's good. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. So far, this just sounds like a self-help book. (laughs) Yeah, right. Now, we're getting right up here to the top now. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Two things you don't usually combine, fitness and diversity. Um, but but now we're starting to see some shades of we we need to make better humans. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's kind of the way I interpret it. Yeah. Healthier, stronger, more diverse human race. Yeah. Um Okay. You you kind of about halfway through and into here, you kind of start seeing a path that this is taking on yeah. where they're they're pushing this information or, or these guidelines. Yeah. And at the top, maintain humanity under 500 million people in perpetual balance with nature. All right, let's let's do let's say that again. Yeah, right. I added the people. So maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Now, it's not saying this area. It's not saying the United States. It is saying humanity. Right. So we're talking about a world population of under 500 million. We've got 7 billion. Yeah. Eight. Eight. Yeah. 7.9 as of April 2022. We're gonna we're gonna get into those numbers here in a minute. It, but that's that is what's inscribed in in multiple languages on the guidestones. So you can see that when you add that that top inscription with the rest of it, now you're beginning to think, well, this sounds less like um, good advice for life and governing, and more of a new world order. Yep. And people that are opposed to what the, the guidestones may or may not represent, um, use this idea to, to say, this is, this is not good. This is a bad thing that is here. They don't, they don't appreciate the fact that it's there. Um, you know, they think it's, it's, it's promoting, you know, these evil ideas, but let's, we're going to come back to that, but let's look at the guidestones themselves. 
Okay, you know, let's 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 look at what the monument is actually made of, uh, and 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 how it came to be. So, on a summer day in 1979, a man using the alias R.C. Christian shows up at the Elberton Granite Finishing Company, presents very detailed and specific plans, and tells them he wants to build the Georgia Guidestones. Now, the only details we have about this R.C. Christian is that he was balding, he had a fringe of white hair, and he had an accent that suggested that he was from one of the Plains states. But he also had money, and plenty of it. Now, Christian explained that the stones would function as a compass, a calendar, and a clock, and should be capable of withstanding catastrophic events like earthquakes. Okay? Now, a man named Joe Findlay um, from the Elberton Granite uh, Company, he assumed that Christian was just some nut job and attempted to discourage him by providing a quote for the commission which was several times higher than any project the company had ever undertaken, explaining that the Guidestones would require additional tools and consultants. But to Finley's surprise, Christian said, okay, <laughs> pretty much like whatever. You know, money it, didn't money, seem like a problem. Yeah, money is no object. So when arranging payment, Christian said that he represented a group which had been planning the Guidestones for 20 years and they wanted to remain anonymous. To this day, nobody has been able to figure out who exactly he is. Now, according to Christian himself, this anonymity was by design because he once said the group feels by having our identity remain secret, it will not distract from the monument and its meaning. But they didn't tell us what it means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Now, um, he he may have been right. So if the monument was known to have been erected by a particular group, it would be easy to dismiss as it's just a bunch of nonsense and whatever right but the lack of a source lets the guidestones kind of just be their own thing and the mystery keeps people interested i mean you know look at us we're talking about it i was gonna say we're doing a whole show on it so (laughs) now only a few people ever met rc christian one was an attorney named wyatt martin who handled the legal matters related to the guidestones and who signed a vow never to discuss his client. And it's a vow that he has kept. Another was a man named Hudson Cone, who was present at the Granite Company when the Guidestones were being created. Now, Cone remembers Christian as being a tall, balding balding man with a fringe of white hair, just like the the, the earlier description. He said he was well-spoken and gave no indication of who or what he represented. So, again, the, you know, the, not only is there mystery about the Guidestones themselves, but there's mystery about the, the person that was involved mm-hmm. in their commission. 
Now, Christian purchased the land where the guidestones stand from a local farmer named Wayne Mullinex. The land totaled five acres, and Mullinex and his family were given lifetime grazing rights for the area surrounding the stones. Now, Christian would later transfer the rights to the land to Elbert County. So they stand on county-owned land right now. Hmm. You know, that's a weird enough story as it is. But, yeah. but let's talk about the the monument and, and and go into some details about it. Now the monument is 19 feet three inches tall or 5.87 meters, and it's made from six granite slabs weighing 237,746 pounds each, or in all, not each, in all total. That's a lot of granite. Mm-hmm. Now. One slab stands in the center, and there are four arranged around it. Now, it, it, you've got one center one, and then the, the other four, they kind of go off like rays of sunlight. Yeah. You know, they go, they go diagonally out from it. A capstone sits on top of the five slabs, which are astronomically aligned. In addition, a stone tablet which is set in the ground a short distance to the west of the structure, provides some notes on the history and purpose of the guidestones, but no real answer. The tablet identifies the structure and the languages used on it and lists various facts about the size, weight, and the astronomical features of the stone. The date it was installed, the sponsors of the project, and so forth. It also refers to a time capsule that's buried underneath the tablet. But there's a blank space on the stone, which was intended for filling in the dates on which the capsule was buried and when it's supposed to be open. And they have not been inscribed. So it's not really known if the time capsule is under there or not. Right. Because those dates weren't filled in. Now, the structure is sometimes referred to as an American Stonehenge because of the mystery surrounding it. So, so you've got this structure. It, it is astronomically aligned. You know, it, it was built with, there's a hole um, all the way through one of the stones, and sunlight will pass through that hole, and it actually projects down on... Like a, a, a essentially a, a sundial slash calendar that, as based on the position of the sun, it's going to shine on what day of the year it is. Yeah. Okay. So there was a lot that went into the design of these. As Christian said, if he's to be believed, it took twenty years to design this. Yeah. The design, the the placement of each stone, the yeah. I mean it. it it took a lot and, and go ahead i was just gonna say and that that's with today's technology or or at least the technology from 1960 to 1980 that right. they had and they, it just makes me think about the old monuments from millennia ago that do something similar and the way they came up with it you know, to, to track days and all that. Right. And 
you know, you, you mentioned you know, they had all that technology. We already understood this, but that may have played into the position uh, and the location of the guidestones themselves. Yep. Where in Georgia they put it and why Georgia and all that. Right. So, Matt, you may have noticed this, like, like I've noticed this. Most of us, when we talk on the phone, we text. But yeah. moms, they call you. They would, right. they would rather hear your voice and talk to you. It, I mean, one of the few people in your life that will actually call you on the phone or leave That's a right. voicemail. Um, and Mother's Day is coming up. So if, if you want to make your mom feel special, like she makes you feel special when she actually calls you instead of just shooting you a text, then you could get her the gift of quality premium wireless audio courtesy of Raycon. And I'll tell you, I was actually literally talking to my mother about her getting some Raycons here pretty soon. So I may get her some for Mother's Day or get some for your wife too for Mother's Day. That's that's always a, a, a bonus there for you because Raycon wireless earbuds are a must-have for super moms, all those masters of multitasking who need to keep their hands free. And with Raycons, they can stay entertained listening to their favorite podcast, <laughs> Graveyard Tales, or music, plus take phone calls with vivid voice technology, all hands free. And Raycons are user-friendly for those moms who are just switching to wireless earbuds. They're easy to set up, easy to use, and seamless Bluetooth pairing. And like we were talking last time, Matt, you can have multiple sets of Raycons in a small little area, and they're not going to try to connect willy-nilly to any device. They're going to connect to your phone and your phone only when you pull them out. That's right, and that that is a huge bonus um, because, you know, with as many kids as we've got, you know, everybody gets together all at once, and, and inevitably more than one of them are using their earbuds and somebody's going, ah, what? What in my? What did my earbuds disconnect? Oh, somebody, and 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 there I am. Hey, <laughs> yep. Nope. Nobody's connecting mine. Mine aren't dropping connection because mine are paired to my phone, and my phone only. And that's great. And, and you know, I, I really enjoy wearing mine when I'm working in the yard. Yep. And and you sweat, and it gets hot. And other wireless earbuds will have a tendency to, to fall out or, or they're not, they, they can't get loud enough to drown out the sound of the mower or the weed eater. You don't have to worry about that with Raycons. They are not going to fall out. You can shake your head. Uh, you can you can bend over. You fall off the up, lawnmower. Fall off the lawnmower. They're not coming out. And so, you know, maybe your mom likes to plant in the garden. Um, you know, maybe she's likes to go jogging you know whatever you're not going to have to worry she's not going to lose her Raycons exactly and you know we've talked about the music and everything but phone calls crystal clear yep no problem you know you can you can talk on the phone um, you can use only one if you need to if you still need to be able to hear what's going on it's outstanding I mean you know it's a fantastic fantastic product at a fantastic price right and for moms on the go 
Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life with the compact portable charging case, which is one of my favorite things because once you get it all charged up, I only charge it maybe once a week, the whole device. Every time you take your earbuds out and put them back in the case, they start charging, and they've got one of the longest battery lives that I have found in wireless earbuds. Yeah, absolutely. So tell mom how much you love her and make sure she hears it in crystal clear audio quality with Raycon. Go to buyraycon.com slash tails. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash tails, T-A-L-E-S to get 15% off your Mother's Day order. That's right. You can go to buyraycon.com, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash tails, T-A-L-E-S, to get 15% off your Mother's Day order. That's buyraycon.com slash tails. Now, the stones were unveiled during a public ceremony on March 22nd, 1980, and they were controversial immediately. Supporters like <laughs> Yoko Ono, oh, Yoko geez. Ono was the big uh, um, sponsor, the, you know what I mean? Uh, not sponsor, uh, promoter, supporter mm-hmm. of these ideas. She said one time that their message is a stirring call to rational thinking. I think a lot of those could be considered that if you took them out of the context of they're on a big giant granite monument in rural Georgia um, that nobody knows uh, who was responsible to put it there. And and when you take that into consideration, it makes it that kind of context blows anything you say out of the water. (laughs) Well, it seems about half of them, you know, are rational thinking and the other half seem to be a wish list of a weird. Well, group or person or something it seems like it goes from rational to radical yeah you know and and it just kind of flows and when you when you read when you look up what's inscribed on there you're gonna see that first one about the population that's at the top so if you're you know you would normally read from top to bottom that's the first thing you get Mm -hmm. if that's the first thing you get then everything else is just going to be is going to be tinted through that lens yeah yeah but if you're approaching this 19 foot monument you're gonna admit your eyes are drawn to the thing that's going to be down there at eye level so that's why i read them that way because this would be if you were to walk up on it this is how you would see it Mm. then you finally look up at the top and you go does that say 500 million (laughs) yeah right (laughs) i think we passed that Mm -hmm. So we've 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 thrown this information at you about these things. If you've never heard of them, you're like, what the hell are they talking about? Yeah. And and you may go, okay, let's I've got some questions, and so do we, along with yeah. everybody else. The problem is there aren't many answers. Right. You know, it's like here this thing is, and we don't we still don't know. Now, as I said, when you read the first one that maintain humanity under 500 million, um, that's the major point of contention. Now, opponents of the guidestones say this phrase is calling for genocide. 
But considering that the world population in 1980 was just over 4.4 billion, that would that would have meant the death of almost 4 billion people. Mm-hmm. And by today's count, that number would swell to about seven and a half billion. Yeah. You know, to get the world population down to around 500 million. And you think about this. It, let's say that the world population was about 500 million. Think about how much room you'd have. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, even small cities have populations of a million or more. Uh-huh. But think about all the area of the U.S., just the U.S., that's essentially, well, let's say low, low populated. You know, it's maybe not unpopulated, but there's a lot of area in the U.S. where people just don't live, like deserts, mm-hmm. you know, large mountain ranges. You know, you look at, you know, areas of Montana and Wyoming and, you know, there's a lot of open area up there. So if you if you look at the world, you got to think, oh, man, you know, you get you get. You know, into northern Canada, you know, there's a there's nobody living up there. You know, very few. Um, you think about Siberia and those kind of places. There's not a lot of people living there. You know, it's it's very few. That's a lot of territory. And you think about where most all the people live, and we're going to cut that to 500 million. Man, you know, uh-huh. it, it seemed like you could walk around for a a day or two and not see another person if you didn't want to. Yeah. So it it's just it, it seems really unrealistic. It is goal. unrealistic. Um but what would happen if if that was the case? You know, nature would take back over. Um it would. I I also think if you had that few people it might be back to hunter gatherer times. We might true. fall um the societies the quote unquote first world societies that we have across the world would probably fall um without people to take care of the infrastructure and exactly. all that and 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 we would be back to hunter gatherer or subsistence farming and stuff like that. Well you just just think about things like right now, the internet. I mean, you know, with with that few people I mean, you know, the the internet maintaining it and, and yeah, you couldn't functioning as we know it today would be extraordinarily difficult. Think about toilets. If oh, yeah. you had 500 million people in the world, you wouldn't have the people to take care of the plumbing, the uh, electrical grid, the nothing like that. We, yeah. we wouldn't, it would, it would crumble. So anyway, so yeah, that, that, that tends to stick out like a turd in a punch bowl for uh-huh. everybody that reads it. But when you want to start digging into the mystery of the Georgia Guidestones, one of the best resources is historian Raymond Wiley, who is the co-author of the Georgia Guidestones, America's Most Mysterious Monument. Now, according to Wiley, the pseudonym R.C. Christian is a clue in and of itself. Um, and he says a pretty blatant one. 
because it harkens back to a 15th century physician and mystic named Christian Christian Rosencruz. And the idea of the Rose Cross and the secret organization known as the Rosicrucians. Now, Christian Christian Rosen, why can't I say that now? <laughs> Christian Christian I still can't say it. Christian Rosencruz is said to have founded the Rosicrucian Society in Germany in the early 15th century. But some people dispute that he was a, a real person at all. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say that he was uh, multiple people, like the Dread Pirate Roberts or something. Yeah. Now, for the members of the society, Rosencruz was a physician who had spent a lifetime gathering what he called sacred knowledge. And if if you want to know even more about the Rosicrucians, we did an episode way back when about secret societies, and we discuss you know the ideology behind the the Rosicrucians. Uh, we got you can some go and of check that, that out. Some of that's coming up too. Yeah, some of it's coming up. So you're gonna get you're you're gonna get the uh, you're going to get a, a, a tutorial on the Rosicrucians here in a minute. Um, but he, uh, he studied ancient Turkish, Sufi, and Persian paths towards understanding, as well as Western medical knowledge. He supposedly traveled throughout the Middle East, being instructed by masters of ancient wisdom. When he returned, Rosencruz supposedly founded his own church to pass on the learning to make sure that it didn't die with him. So at first, all the members were doctors. Each one took an oath to heal the sick without payment, to maintain the secrecy of the fellowship, and to find a replacement for Rosencruz before he died. The sacred knowledge is said to include elements of alchemy and psychic manipulation. So modern Rosicrucians are believed to have uh, even been able to tap the ultimate power of the human mind. Some think the sect has evolved and they now seek to protect and guide humanity away from its own destruction. Now, others have, accru- have accused the Rosicrucians of being just an, just pure evil. Um, but, you know, that, again, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, look at these ideas and you're going, eh, that's not so bad. Uh, that sounds all right. That would actually be pretty good. Wait, what did you just say? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. That, that could probably be true about a lot of things. You know? Yeah. But it, it it's a connection now. And it's one of the one of the only connections we have to as to what what was the idea behind the construction of the Georgia Guidestones? Um, it, it gives us a little bit more insight as to what might have been their inspiration. But again, we don't know. So Adam's going to talk a little bit more about the Rosicrucians and and why we think this may be um, connected with modern day Rosicrucians. Right. And, you know, he said the the guy's name, R.C. Christian, it very possibly could stand for the Rosicrucian Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, to tie it, you know, not just to Rosencruz, but just to here's the order. My my pseudonym, um, is a nod to the order. 
Now, this this part comes directly from what the Rosicrucian order says about themselves. Now, the Rosicrucians are a community of philosophers who study and practice the natural laws governing the universe. Our mission is to provide seekers with the spiritual wisdom necessary to experience their connectedness with the miraculous world around us and to develop mastery of life. Our studies include the mysteries of birth and death, the illusory nature of time and space, awakening of the psychic consciousness, human consciousness and cosmic consciousness, mystical powers of vowel sounds and mantras, the creative power of visualization, influence of thoughts on health, development of the uh, intuition, psychological and uh, psychological and mysticism, metaphysical healing, sacred architecture, and spiritual alchemy. Now, it all seems, I mean, all of that is very, I guess, what people would consider modern day woo-woo. Yeah, well, it. I mean, a lot of it you can uh, you find in um, Eastern religion, and mm-hmm. especially you know when you're talking about like Confucianism, uh, Buddhism. It, it's it, there's a lot about self betterment and enlightenment. Um, so you know on on the surface, it doesn't sound that bad. Because it sounds very introspective. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's about me and how I fit into the world and unlocking my full potential. I mean, how, how many different theologies have we seen that take a similar path? You know, right. they, may, they may branch off in other directions, but there's a core idea of you're going to you, you want to make yourself a better human. You want to unlock your full potential and we're going to help you seek that out just as we are seeking it out. Right. Now they go on to say that the ancient mystical order Rosicrucis is the Latin form of the organization's name which literally translate into the ancient mystical order of the Rose Cross. Now, there is no religious connotation associated with this symbol. The rose cross symbol predates Christianity, it says, and the cross symbolically represents the human body, and the rose represents the individual's unfolding consciousness. The Rosicrucian movement, of which the Rosicrucian order, A-M-O-R-C, is the most prominent modern uh, representative, um, has its roots in the mystery the mystery traditions, philosophy, and myths of ancient Egypt dating back to approximately 1500 BCE in antiquity, the word mystery referred to a special gnosis, a secret wisdom. Now, thousands of years ago in ancient Egypt, select bodies or schools were formed to explore the mysteries of life and learn the secrets of this hidden wisdom. Only sincere students displaying a desire for knowledge and meeting certain tests were considered worthy of being inducted into these mysteries. Over the course of centuries, these mystery schools added an initiatory dimension to the knowledge they transmitted. 
It is further traditionally related that the order's first member um, member students met in secluded chambers in magnificent old temples where, as candidates, they were initiated into the great mysteries. Now, all of this is still from what they say. Um, says Pharaoh Tutmosis III, who ruled Egypt from 1500 to 1447 B.C., organized the first esoteric school of initiates founded upon principles and methods similar to those perpetuated today by the Rosicrucian order. Decades later, Pharaoh Amenhotep IV was initiated into the secret school. The most enlightened Pharaoh, history's first monotheist, was so inspired by the mystery teachings that he gave a completely new direction to Egypt's religion and philosophy. Yeah. It all goes back to Egypt. It always seems to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, Aleister Crowley and mm-hmm. all the time that he spent in Egypt. You consider the the pyramids um, and, and their connection with, you know, astrological bodies. Yeah. I mean, you know, all of these kind of secret societies... They, they all seem to eventually get back to Egypt in some fashion. Yeah, yeah. And, and it always seems to go back to the, the, the quote-unquote mysterious teachings of mm-hmm. Egyptian priests and pharaohs of the time. Now, I'm going to skip ahead in what they say a little bit and get up to the 21st century. And it says, in the 21st century, we feel strongly that these teachings will play an increasingly important role in humanity's evolution. With fast-paced technological advancements and its effects upon the environment and the human psyche, people are searching for an inner, ever-reliable source of strength and balance. Perhaps now more than ever, we are reaching out for understanding, for mystical illumination, for spiritual guidance, for harmony and peace. Through its unique system of instructions and its humanitarian ideals, the Rosicrucian order offers a beacon of light to all who seek the answers to life's questions by following this inner path to wisdom. So in the what they're saying about the 21st century there, it does seem to align with the inscriptions on the Georgia Guidestones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this isn't what? like a big stretch. No, I mean when you look when you look at those um, those ideals, and you look at those inscriptions, there's a lot of similarities there, and right. you know the inscriptions are written in hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. So yep. and again, Sanskrit. Mm. Yeah, you've you've got a connection to, um, you know, ancient languages. You know, you've got a direct connection to Egypt. So. I mean, it's there's there's enough meat on the bone there to make this make this relationship. Yeah. And I feel like we talked about this in the the secret order, the secret societies episode that we did. But um, we mentioned it a minute ago, too. There's a there's a mistaken thought that the Rosicrucians are a ancient Christian order. Right. Because it has a cross in it. Well, it's it's not that case. They're they're an esoteric, very um, human centrist 
uh, spirit centrist society. So it, it, it again leads to those inscriptions on the guidestones because the guidestone inscriptions don't take a very Christian oriented path. Right. And, and neither do the teachings of uh, the Rosicrucian order. Um, now, this comes from an encyclopedia um, section on the Rosicrucians, and I thought this was interesting, and Matt touched on some of it, but it, it kind of muddies the water of the inception of the Rosicrucian movement and how they say it came about versus what uh, philosophers and, and historians say. Mm-hmm. It, this says that the origins and teachings of the Rosicrucians are described in three anonymously published books that have been attributed to Johann Valentin Andrea. From He lived 1568 to 1654. He was a, a Lutheran theologian and teacher who wrote the utopian treatise um, Christianopolis in 1619, the Fama Fratern, Fraternitatis of the Meritorious Order of the Rosy Cross in 1614, the Confession of the Rosicrucian Fraternity, 1615, and the Chemical Marriage of the Christian Rosencruz, 1616. They recount the travels of Christian Rosencruz, who Matt mentioned, um, the putative founder of the group who is now generally regarded as a fictional character rather than a real person. According to the books, Rosencruz was born in 1378 and lived for 106 years. After visiting the Middle East and North Africa in search of secret wisdom, he returned to Germany and organized the Rosicrucian Order in 1403. He erected a sanctuary in 1409, where he was entombed after his death in 1484. The alleged discovery of the tomb 120 years later became the occasion for the public announcement of the order's existence. Now, in the 19th century, new Rosicrucian societies appeared as part of a general occult revival that took place in Europe and the United States. The first, the Rosicrucian Fraternity, was established in San Francisco in 1858, by the American spiritualist and abolitionist Pascal Beverly Randolph, lived from 1825 to 1875. Several groups, such as the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia and the Societas Rosicruciana in Civitatibus Foderitas, excuse the pronunciation. I'm <laughs> glad you got them. Doing the best I can. Um, this was founded in England in 1866 and 1880, respectively, emerged out of Freemasonry. So those last two, apparently, Freemasons then moved to um, the Rosicrucianism. Mm-hmm. Now, the two most successful modern Rosicrucian organizations were established in the 20th century. The ancient mystical order Rosicrucis, A-M-O-R-C, who we were reading about a minute ago, was founded in New York City in 1950 by H. Spencer Lewis, claiming that he had learned the teachings of the Order of European Rosicrucians. Lewis attracted new members from around the world 
by distributing his teachings in mail-order lessons. Regarding Egypt as the cradle of Rosicrucian wisdom, he subsidized the creation of a highly acclaimed Egyptian museum at the group's headquarters in San Jose, California. The other important modern organization in Rosicrucian Fellowship, whose founder, Max Heindel, attended lectures in Germany by the theosophist Rudolf Steiner, after publishing purportedly secret doctrines against Steiner's wishes, Heindel taught a form of Rosicrucianism heavily influenced by theosophy. The Rosicrucian Fellowship was founded in Seattle in 1909, and it it inspired the creation of other groups, including the Lectorium Rosicrucianum, uh, which was founded in the Netherlands in 1924 by two of Heindel's Dutch students, um, Jan van Reichenborg and Catherine de Petri. Um, this was closed by the Nazis. It was reorganized after World War II and subsequently became a worldwide institution. So, it's got a, a, a weird, tangled history, and mm-hmm. depending on where you look, you'll see different origin stories for it, but no matter where they started or how it started, the thinking now, and, and has been for all of the 20th and 21st century, is this mystical order, supposedly from... Egypt mm-hmm. that like you were saying teaches you to look introspectively but and, yeah and, it's weird and the 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 interesting thing that I I take from this is that um not not only are the Rosicrucians real I mean you know there there is enough documentation and 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 writings um and history to know that these people did exist and they still exist today. Mm-hmm. They did and do exist. Right. So it's, it's not, it's not way off base. I mean, I, I could see where people say, you know, this ancient organization isn't throwing up monuments in the modern era, but they exist. So why not? I mean, you know, the, the, it seems plausible. I mean, it really does. Mm-hmm. And, and plus we know that a lot of these secret societies have members that are wealthy. And, yeah. you know, we've talked about other secret societies, you know, these wealthy, powerful people are, are drawn to these type of organizations. Um, they got all this money and they're bored and they're like, right. I need this weird um, esoteric teaching that I didn't grow up with. And, I mean, you know, I, and I'm sure, you know, you can, you can go online and you can, you can join, you can join. I mean, you can, you can sign up and you can, you can purchase the, the teachings and, you know, it, I've it, always thought if I joined, like I've got buddies who are Freemasons. Mm-hmm. I always wondered if I joined a, would they let me move up high enough in the ranks being that I do what I do. And I, I talk about this stuff for a living here would they allow me up in the ranks to learn the secrets <laughs> yeah and if they did would i learn any crazy secrets that i'm like oh my god i really want to talk about this you know I, <laughs> and then, it, then you're terrified to talk about it 
Yeah, exactly. It, it just makes me it makes me want to so bad. Yeah. But I, I know I'm not going to learn anything. Well, yeah. Revealing about the 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 society or or who runs the world or anything yeah. like just, that. You know? Just know that you you know when you when you sign up and you and you pay your your fee, you're not going to get you know a package in the mail that says hey. Here they are, all the secrets. We're giving them to yeah, you away. Right. For ninety nine ninety five. you too mm. can know all the secrets, but don't talk about them. But- Most of what you would run into is just a bunch of old dads and granddads trying to get away from their families on the weekend to drink beer. That That's about 90% of what Freemasonry is yeah, nowadays. You know, it's, uh, yeah, that's what it's kind of turned Probably into. same with Rosicrucianism. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's something something to do. Um, but there's been other theories as to why they exist that, that don't involve the Rosicrucians, although um, it, it does seem to fit quite, quite well, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, but there are some interesting other ideas um, going back and looking at, you know, the stones themselves, how they were constructed, who possibly paid for them and things like that, that have led people to come up with some other ideas. Now, this is an interesting um, factoid that I, I, I didn't know where else to put. So I put it right here. Um, as we mentioned, it's the inscriptions are written in several different languages. And it's written in English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, Mandarin, and Russian. Okay? Now, in researching this, I heard multiple times in different interviews, videos, and in some articles that this was done because these were the most uh, common languages throughout the world. Let's, let's clear that up. Okay? Missing from the top eight languages are Bengali, Portuguese, Japanese, and German. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why are Hebrew and Swahili on the list? They're not even in the world's top 50 languages. Right. Okay. So even, and, and here's an interesting point about that. Even if you're only considering languages that are spoken in the United States, the top eight are still missing Cantonese, French, German, Tagalog, Vietnamese, and Italian. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean the those on on top of the the other on the other languages, those are the most common languages spoken in the U.S. Where the monument is. So yeah, so they didn't even include like, all the languages in the U.S. Yeah, it, it either seems like. They were not going with the most popular languages like some people have interpreted or they got their facts wrong in doing it. Um, Because I I don't even think in in 1980 that would have been the case for top eight languages. So I had had some theories about why these would have been included. And but I couldn't I couldn't get everything to fit much like a lot of people do. But I'll tell you anyway. So I looking back at like ancient history and 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 different empires, dynasties, um, 
you know, in influential rule. If you look at those and and how they influence history, so you you say, okay, Mandarin, you know, Chinese dynasties. There's tons of ancient history, you know, and, and we're we're talking about you know a huge area with an enormous influence on history. Okay, so I I get Mandarin. Okay, um, Arabic, same thing. Okay, major impact on history. Um, you know the 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 Middle East is, you know, is widely considered where you know the world population began. Okay, so we include Arabic, Hebrew. If you you know look at the influence of uh, not just Christianity but Judaism, you know, on the world. You know, mm-hmm. Okay, you know, we'll include Hebrew, even though it's not in the top fifty languages now. We'll include we include that because it was influential. Hindi. Now that kind of threw me for a loop. I was thinking, okay, is is there a large part of history that was influenced, you know, by Indian culture? You know, India didn't have a big empire. In fact, they were a part of the British Empire. Yeah, but the the one thing I can say that maybe would bring them into this discussion of esoteric beliefs is the the Hindu religion and and what they believe it kind of falls in line with some of these Rosicrucian teachings um and their creation story has started coming back in into popularity here in the last several decades um due to people looking back at the, the, it, the I hate to say this but the ancient astronaut theory because of how supposedly their gods rode around on ships in the sky and stuff. So it it could be that that's put in there because whoever did these tablets or commissioned these tablets leans toward that theory. Yeah. You know, because it's not a, a largely religious teaching the the rosicrucians aren't so maybe they lean toward the more ancient astronaut type of deal which we know people say that about the egyptians they say that about ancient um indian cultures Mm -hmm. so i don't know i'm I'm trying to make it fit and it's it gets hard it does and you know, I just I I realized something, you know, going into this that, you know, earlier I had told Adam, I was like, Hey, it's only eight languages, you had it listed as twelve. What I wasn't thinking then was that it's it also is included in hieroglyphics and Sanskrit. So essentially dead languages. Um, mm-hmm. you know, these are the modern languages that are still spoken. So we were we were both Four right. Languages. Yeah, yeah, we were both right with that. Now we could we for some reason, when we talked about it, we couldn't figure out what, why did this was, why did we, why did we put this in here? That's why. 
yeah. is because, you know, you've got essentially like four dead languages that are included in these mm-hmm. inscriptions. Um, but again, you can understand the Vimanas. that that was the word I was trying to come up with with the ancient um, teachings of India, the Vimanas. Yeah. And that that's the the. The stuff about their their ancient astronaut, their gods riding on okay. uh, spacecraft and stuff like that. Okay, so. yeah. So so maybe that influence fits in there, but you definitely would see how uh, at least hieroglyphics in Sanskrit mm-hmm. would would fit in there too, um, because of their you know influence on on history, um, and then and of course cuneiform, yeah, cuneiform, yeah. Um, but then you you look English, well you know yeah I understand that Spanish as well and Span and and mm-hmm. Spain you know had a had a very large influence on history, um you know especially you know Western history too, yep so, uh, you know you you begin to kind of think well maybe they were just it, the languages were more of a timeline through history, um you know of of who influenced the world culture the most at the time will include these languages. Um, But again, that's, that's just my idea. Yeah. And you know, as to why they would have chosen these particular languages. It's as good idea as any, since we don't know, uh, there's no definitive answer on that. So I like your thought on that because all of these languages, you can look back and they have a very, important role on the development of societies and the development of our thinking and our our legends and our history of how the world was created and and they all have a very vivid structure of their gods and and history and stuff like that so it, it makes sense i mean if you go and look at the societies that spoke these languages, then go look at their creation stories and all that, they all seem to be pretty similar, but they're all right. very vivid and and elaborate. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So um so there are other theories. Um and one particular person I, I, I really I really dig his theory. Um, this is Hudson Cone, who I mentioned earlier was one of the men who actually met R.C. Christian. And he was quoted as saying, anytime you have something with an air of mystery around it, you invite different interpretations. Now, those differing interpretations, Cone insists, are one of the things that have kept the Georgia Guidestones at the center of so much speculation and public interest. Uh He says he's had people tell him that this is the holiest spot on the planet. He said, while others will tell him that it's the the location is somehow profane or evil, and it's a focal point for satanic power. I I actually tried looking up ley lines and to see if ley lines crossed in Elberton, and I could not find specifically anything about that. No. There was a lot of stuff about Savannah. Yeah. People doing ley lines around Savannah. Yeah, I but, mean, you know, look, Savannah's haunted as hell. So, 
Yeah. You know, but this place is not. I mean, there's really nothing paranormal about this at all. Um, but Cone doesn't believe that that spot or the guidestones are evil. In fact, he thinks that the questions the guidestone raise are themselves its truest purpose. He says, I believe it was put here to stimulate curiosity. Just, it, it's a big conversation piece. Maybe. You know, and, and that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, what better way to get people to talk and think about the nature of our relationship to the world and to one another than create an enormous mystery that gets people to talk about it? George's coffee table book. Yeah. And so you present this mystery in the world's greatest languages so that all can participate in the discussion. Okay. You know, I, you know, I kind of like that. But what what really is odd to me is that no one has claimed ownership of this. Mm-hmm. No one has just come out and said, yeah, we did it. This is the way we think. These are, you know, we think these are good principles. And that whole 500 million people thing, you know, that that's just a concept. It's just an idea. You know, what would it be like? I mean, look, you know, Adam and I spent how much time talking tonight about what it would be like <laughs> if there was only yeah. 500 million people in the world several minutes yeah. yeah so i mean you know that if that was their um if that was uh, their purpose then that they did it you know they absolutely did it, it at least for the two of us and and plenty yep. of other people because like we said there's a lot of stuff about this out there i mean you can follow our uh our sources and you can find a lot of stuff that we didn't even bring up um i, I told adam i found a conspiracy theory that um, the guy, the Finley, the guy that owned the granite company, that he did this. This was his deal to to get people to buy more granite. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you got to be joking. Uh, yeah, I would think yeah. at, at some point something would have come out where they said, hey, you know, this was a big publicity stunt. Don't you think if it was that, they would put on the tablet somewhere, buy more granite? Sure. Or they would have put... Granite is the source of life in one of the, you know, you, you must have granite in your home to survive some, whatever yeah. and, and to sell more granite. They wouldn't have not mentioned granite if that was the case. You know, here's the thing. If, if I want somebody to listen to this show, I like to talk about this show. And, yeah, right. And what we do and, and, and how we do it. If I want somebody to buy more granite, what the heck is building this this monument with this strange new world order uh or some I heard somebody call it, you know, a a modern day 10 commandments. Um Yeah. Wh- why do that? That would be the most awkward and subtle way to advertise your business ever. Mhm. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's like how I get people listen to this show. I mention the name, but then I tell them about another podcast. And so they come and they listen to Graveyard Tales expecting that other podcast I was telling them about. And then they just get hooked on this one. (laughs) So maybe that's what they're doing. You know, they want you to buy more granite, but they're telling you about something totally different. Yeah. But using their granite. What y'all don't know is that Adam has a separate Twitter account for a podcast that doesn't exist. 
Yeah. <laughs> and and people it, it 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 sounds super interesting and people go to it and it's just it's us. <laughs> it's a link just to this show, yeah. That's not bad. <laughs> I I'm probably going to do that now. So. <laughs> How do we get people from a different demographic? We trick them. That's what we do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe the guide stones is actually a trick to get you to listen to a podcast hey maybe maybe we know, haven't like, decoded it yet and it's 1980 it was a it was a radio show and now it's a podcast we don't know yeah. because they're not owning up to it well i know who did it no oh, scott okay. and forrest from astonishing legends if you look down at the very bottom of one of the guide stones there it says astonishing legends down at the bottom i mean it says if you believe any of this at all (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so (laughs) now i just wait for forrest to text me and go how did you know (laughs) all these years and and, and goofballs figure it out (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, us two idiots So anyway, you know, we've had a little bit of fun with this, but I mean, seriously, I mean, I've grown, I grew up in Tennessee and, and I live here now and I've never heard of this. And, and, you know, with, with the stuff that Adam and I look at and, and we find researching other topics, this has not come across. Um, I mean, when, when Amanda sent me this article i was like i've never heard of this i don't know what this is what are you sending me she's like i think this would be cool to look into and and it was i mean but it it is it's a mystery and we may never know what um what the real purpose was who who it was that commissioned the construction of the guidestones but there they stand um something tells me those people are already dead yeah and the secret has gone with them but you know they the 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 Albert County you know they they take good care of this. I mean you know it it's been vandalized a couple of times. Um, you know they make sure that it 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 stays clean and protected. There are security cameras there um, with signs that says this area is under video surveillance, and uh, you know so they at least you know make an effort to you which know, is say, interesting. This, we like this, you know. Let's leave it here. It's interesting in and of itself that somebody bought the land and put this up and then turned the land back over to the county and the county hasn't torn it down and, and right. done something else with it. It you know, it, it's county property and they're leaving it up and they're taking care of it even though they had nothing to do with putting it up. That's just interesting. To me, and I know maybe I'm just skeptical of of so many things, but that the government would, the government of that county would continue to take care of the land and and the monument and all that. Yeah, is it's odd. It's it's interesting. It it's kind of cool that they do that, but then it also makes me ask why. <laughs> You know, yeah, why, right. Why? Why are you? Why, why are you? Why, why putting you that much anything? money and effort into taking care of something that you don't know what it is, and you didn't pay for it? You didn't. You just acquired the land, and 
Well, and, I don't know. And that that's come up too that it it was it was a, a thing to draw tourism to that area, but it, there's there was a catch. What else are you going to do there? That's right. I mean, that's right. There's nothing else there. And and what's interesting is in the in the in the instructions uh for the guidestones that were that were presented by uh by Christian they're not allowed to have any kind of like gift shop, you know, uh, t-shirt mm-hmm. booths, any of that. They they weren't allowed to commercialize it in any way. Yeah. So it, it really makes no you think there, there merch. was a higher purpose for this. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it wasn't for tourism and, you know, and unfortunately if, if, you know, a lot of places in the U S by now, um, it would, it would be, uh, it would be inside a little fence, um, in a, in a little bitty courtyard and you would have mm-hmm. townhomes and apartments surrounding it. And it would be like attached to a playground, um, because it's done open it, land and they're building yeah. crap everywhere. They if you'd have done it in Dallas County, they would have put walls up around it and started charging you to go in to see it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I guarantee they they would have built something around it, and if you wanted to go see the the Dallas Guidestones, you'd have to pay forty five dollars per person to walk around it for an hour. Yeah, and they would have totally ignored the T shirt thing and started selling guides Dallas Guidestone T shirts. Yeah, guarantee you, you you could buy little key rings with it. Um, mm-hmm. you could get a a Guidestone flavored a snow cone. You'd watch like a, a fifteen air minute video for your car mirror. Yeah, you, you'd watch like a fifteen minute video that would uh, look like a History Channel documentary, uh, mm-hmm. telling you all this stuff, and then you'd get to go see them, and you'd walk around, and you'd look, you'd take your photos, and then you'd move on. Uh, yeah, that you can drive right up to these things. Yep. I mean, it's just right there off the road. You pull off. There it is. Maybe that is the key to the placement of these guidestones because the people that did it knew if you put it in a city similar to Dallas, because there's several of those around the country, yeah. uh, that it would become a tourist trap and the, the county would have taken over and started charging or torn it down. So maybe that is the reason for Elberton, Georgia, because they knew it was far enough out. Maybe they knew how the government was run there, and they knew these people would take care of it and not try to capitalize on the fact that it's there. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. But e- extremely interesting, and like I said, still a mystery. Yeah, we've we've figured nothing out this episode. This is an entire <laughs> episode. We have talked for almost an hour and a half. We figured nothing out. Nothing. We have more questions than when we started, and I have zero answers. Yeah, I just confused myself three times through this whole episode, and I'm still confused. But maybe, just maybe, somebody in the graveyard has has got some additional insight that they would like to RC share. R.C. Christian, are yeah, you listening? Are you listening? <laughs> and if you are... Uh, go get in our Facebook group, which is where you can share this kind of information. Um, or just email us. <laughs> yeah, or just yeah, email us. You know, heck, you can call, leave it on our voicemail. We'd love to hear mm-hmm. from you. Um, I'd call you back. But I'm sure 
that we've got listeners that have already been familiar with it. We may even have some that have seen it. And and if you have, we, we would love to hear those stories too. Uh, and as I said, our Facebook group is the best way to uh, to share that information with us and the rest of the graveyard. Um, right. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, just go and search Graveyard Tales. And as Adam mentioned uh, earlier, um, you can uh, you can go to uh, our Patreon site and become a patron. And we appreciate uh, all the hard-earned money that has been donated to the effort that Adam and I put mm-hmm. into this show. Um, don't forget our website, graveyardpodcast.com. And there you can listen to the show. You can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise because we have no such uh, uh, policy against selling T-shirts and keychains and coffee mugs with our stuff on it. Um, We'll sell it. (laughs) We will. You know, heck, you could get somebody out there has a Graveyard Tales baby onesie. So, um, so yeah, you know, we'll stick it on anything. But uh, for the Georgia Guidestones, uh, it's it's all I got, man. Yep. All right. Yep, me too. Until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.